want to talk with you about a topic I title, Am I There Yet? This is the final teaching in a three-part sermon that's been sermon series entitled, What Really Matters? And I'm going to be looking at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and specifically chapter 16. You may say, well, what do you, what do you mean, am I there yet? The question speaks to potential. We're in the beginning of the year. We set goals, we set dreams, we set desires, we have our vision boards. But I want to take a step back and look at life through this philosophical lens that says, have you reached your potential as of yet? Am I there yet? I didn't ask you if you know what your purpose is, because purpose and potential are different. Purpose speaks of direction, potential speaks of capacity. If you were a race car driver and I posed a question to you, I said, your race car, what's, what's the highest speed it was designed to travel? And you tell me, oh, 230 miles per hour. And then I follow up with another question, have you ever driven your car at that speed? And you say, yeah, several times. I would walk away with this thought in mind that you have driven your car at its potential speed, its capacity. As I'm walking away, I see this, this van driver, and van looks pretty large, take a lot of passengers. So I said, how, how many people can your, your van hold? And the guy says, including me? I said, yeah. He said, 15. Then I ask, have you ever filled your van all the way up to its capacity? He said, yeah, all the time. So I would conclude then that the van has reached its potential capacity of 15. So anytime you hear the word potential, it speaks of your ability. It speaks of the room you have to grow to achieve your capacity. It also speaks of the design capability. So that means that potential always involves a designer. God, who's our designer, must be included in the equation whenever you deal with your potential. He knows what he's designed you to be able to do and what he's designed you to be able to become. And so God should be involved in the process and in the equation. We ministers are guilty oftentimes when we teach, we use these powerful Bible characters, Paul, Elijah. And we're left and we listen to sermons like this. I mean, that's Paul, that's Elijah, that's not me. I want to take a different approach today. I don't want to take the big, the noble, the powerful. I want to look at the insignificant, the ones that you have to really thumb through the Bible to find their name and find out what they've done. And even those individuals have potential. There were two principal characters in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah. Before they were named Abraham and Sarah, they were named Abram and Sarai. They had a problem. They couldn't get pregnant. Sarai had a harebrained scheme. I want to go there at verse 1. Because in that scheme, we're going to see the insignificant character of Hagar. That's my focus today. Verse 1 says... Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. 
go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she, dis she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Let's stop there. I want, you, I want to bring you with me to Hebron. That's where this is located. And I want you to sit with me next to Hagar. She's sitting by a spring along the road that leads to a place called Shore. A lot of misery, a lot of pain. Her heart's heavy. And while she's sitting there, she's having this pity party. And this angel visits her and helps to just, as if it were, shake her and say, Look, stop feeling sorry for yourself. God wants to take you out of this pit and take you to your potential. And here's what your potential looks like. You're going to have a son, and the children that he'll have and the children's children that they'll have will be so numerous you wouldn't be able to count them. Pit, potential. I think I'm speaking to the right people today. There's some of you who are having this pity party. But there's some specific things that Sarai did that helped her move from pit to potential. And wherever you are on this continuum, I want you to apply the same principles to your life. Problems position me. That's what Hagar had to say to herself because she discovered that. You know, it's, it's amazing. I don't know about you, but problems always seem so disruptive. We hate problems. In fact, we don't like anything to do with it. Problems always appear at the wrong time. They come from the wrong people. And they happen in the wrong places. In fact, problems cause us a lot of problems. They plague us, they puzzle us, they pain us. That's what problems do. And so what we often don't realize is that problems have the power to position us so we can accomplish and achieve our potential. We never think of them that way. One person said that life without problems is a school without lessons. Now, rub your hands together like this. 
All of what I said was just the appetizer. Don't fill up on that. Let's get into the meal now. Let's get into the meal. I'm hungry. I want to jump right in. I'm ready. I'm ready. Childlessness, childlessness in Bible days was a huge problem. Barren women, like Sarah, had a range of emotions. They would move sometimes from the extreme emotion that says, I'm cursed by God. Sometimes they'll segue to another emotion that says, I'm a disappointment to my husband. Sometimes they'll camp out to say that my barrenness is God's will. So they cycled from emotion to emotion. Sarai, on top of the problem of barrenness, she brought an additional problem into her marriage. When she said to her maid, you know, Hagar, hey, I want to give my husband to you. You'll be his second wife. Now let's take a step back. I, I know we read the word slave. In Bible days, Slavery was a social system that was very intricate and very, and very involved from a hierarchical structure. There are different levels and different dimensions of slaves. Don't rush to our 21st century definition and put, you know, bring that back into the biblical text. If you do, then you're guilty of a hermeneutical violation, the science of Bible interpretation. You just committed a crime. In Bible days, there were six different levels of slavery. The worst level is, is a galley slave. That's a servant or a slave in the base of ships that would, that would row the ship in the bottom and then they'd get whipped. That's one level. But when you read about Joseph, Joseph was the, was the partner for, for, for Potiphar, a business partner. So you can move, and he was, he was moving a lot of money around and was in charge of a major household and then he became second in command of all of Egypt, slaves. So I don't want us to, to rush to a judgment. Let's take a step back. Hagar was the maid of Sarai. But I mentioned that Sarai had a problem. The barrenness, one, she herself said it was that. And then two, is that she then said, Hey, Abram, I want you to marry my maid, Hagar. Abram said, Okay. Here's the problem that it created. Anytime you have a polyamorous relationship, there are problems. You may say polyamorous? Yeah, open relationship. You violate monogamy? Problem. Girlfriend on the side? Problem. Even you, say, you may say, well, my wife's cool with it. Problem, problem, problem. <laughs> but I'm not going to deal with that today. That's a different sermon. But what I am saying is that when Hagar got pregnant, that she began to despise Sarah. One scholar says, the meaning of despise, she began to look down upon her own mistress as if Sarai was the maid and slave and not her. And so that's what's wrong with polyamorous relationship. Emotions come up that you never knew you had when you get into it. And so when Hagar realized that she's, you know, that Sarah, uh, uh, she, look, I got pregnant so easy. She's married 10 years, nothing. So Hagar figured, I'm it. And then Sarah starts to complain to Abram, you know, they're having a little bit of intimate time. You need to take care of your slave. They never called her name. Abram said, that's your slave. Do with her whatever pleases you. Then the scripture says that Sarah mistreated Hagar, means that she showed Hagar her power. Hagar fled. 
Now let's camp out to understand how problems can position us. Hagar is by the side of the road. Sure, she's pregnant. She's alone. She's filled with misery. Who could she have spoken to? Couldn't talk to Abram. Couldn't talk to Sarah. Couldn't talk with any of the other people that worked on this, you know, this, in this household because of her relationship. So she's alone and isolated with all of this misery going on on the inside. And she's running away from her mistress. And there she is having her pity party. She's about to enter into single parenthood. She's saddled with pity and poverty and perhaps even prostitution in the days that lie ahead as she's trying to make ends meet for her family. And while she's there, this angel visits her on the road to shore. Now shore or S-H-U-R, is the northeastern part of Egypt. In other words, this Egyptian maid is going back home. From Hebron to Shur is 200 miles. That's the distance from here, from us walking from here to Washington, D.C. That's a long distance. It'll take on average 10 to 20 days to walk that distance. And this pregnant woman, it may take a lot longer. But let's see what the angel does to help position her so she can see that that's what problems are supposed to do. Problems position you. Verse 8 says, And he, the angel, said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of God, or angel of the Lord, said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they will be too many to count. When that angel called her name, that was the first time in a long time someone called her name. When you read verses 1 through 10 of Genesis 16, you never saw Abram calling her by her name. He refers to her as slave. Sarai, referring to her as slave, your slave, that slave. And this angel called her name, which meant that God knew who she was. I want you to know in the midst of your problems, God knows who, we, who you are. And she responds then, hey, when the angel said, why are you here? Where are you running from? Where are you going? He said, my mistress, she says, my mistress. And she's blaming Sarai for the problem. Nowhere did she realize, wait a second, take a step back and see what Sarai did for you. When she said to you, hey, I want to give you my husband. What she was saying is that it takes a lot of humility for me to do that. It takes a lot of self-denial for me to give my husband and me become first wife, you're the second wife, for me to provide that self-effacement, that humility, it takes a lot. And when I gave you my husband, you couldn't see that I just gave you a major social advancement from just being merely a maid to becoming the wife of this multi-millionaire. In that context, Abram was a wealthy man. Hagar couldn't see it, couldn't appreciate it. She's strutting around like a peacock. And so all of a sudden, when Sarai showed her her power, a beat down, sister got crazy. <laughs> and she flew, fled, fled from, the, from, from Hebron. The angel's helping her say, look, let me let you look at life a certain way. Go back. Face your problem. Stop running away. One of the easiest things to do is run away. 
I wonder if I pull this audience and you and I sat together in your living room and we got real vulnerable with one another and real honest and real open and real candid with each other and I ask you a question, what are you running away from? Are, are, you, are you en route to your potential? It's easy to run away. Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts comic strip said, there's no heavier burden than an unfulfilled potential. And I want to encourage you, you have this potential, this capacity, this ability, this, you know, this trajectory. That God has designed you to, to do great things and to be someone greater than you are right now. And I don't want you to settle for mediocrity. Why? Because you're unwilling to face your problems. Problems have power to be able to position you into the right path. And that's what the angel is trying to get across to Hagar. And so he said, look, don't go to shore. God's will is not for you to go back home. Go back to Hebron. God has a plan for you. And your son will have other descendants. And their descendants will have other descendants. And the end result will be your potential will be so vast. But if you go to Hebron, you'll abort your potential. I want, or if you go rather to Egypt, you'll abort your potential. I wonder how many of you are going to Egypt rather than going back and facing the problem. What Hagar realized was this, people provoke me. And I'm using the word provoke, not in a sense of irritate, people do that, but I'm using provoke in another definition, another meaning of the word, which is it stirs up, people stir you up, they stimulate you to take positive action. It is amazing what people can do. And in verse 9 we see, the angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit humbly to her authority. So Hagar is to eat humble pie and she's walking back to Hebron. You know what she's discovering as she's walking back? That God cared equally for the maid as he did for the mistress. That God cared equally for the penniless as he did for the prosperous. That as easily as Sarai threw her out, it was as easily as God sought her out. And she allowed God to work down under her skin. See, that's where the real work of grace and the work of God occurs in your life and in mine. It's down under the skin. And when Hagar is allowing that to occur, it's like when Jesus finds us, we're always lost. We're lost in ourselves. We're lost in aimlessness. We're lost in our feelings. We're lost in, 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 in the throes of life. I remember when I was interacting with the middle linebacker for the New York Giants when I used to be involved in the chaplain's office. And he said to me, he said, Pastor, can I, can I chat with you for a minute? I said, sure, what's going on, Michael? He said, man, I, he said, I remember. He said, he asked me about my journey to faith in Christ. And I told him how I came from a life of atheism to come and meet the Savior. And I said, what about your journey? He said, I was playing with the Dallas Cowboys, and I was having such a horrible season. He, he said, have you ever had 60,000 people booing you? I said, no. He said, I had. He said, I was so depressed, I felt myself crying out to God. 
And there is how I came to know Christ during that time. See, the work, it's down under the skin. It's in the emotions. It's in the feelings. And the angel says to, to Hagar, go back to your mistress and submit humbly to her authority. What he's saying in essence is, return home. The will of God's not back in Egypt. Go back home. Adjust your attitude. Stop with the attitude that you're having. Change it. Take the place of the second in your life. Submit, you know, submit humbly to Sarai and stop strutting around like a peacock like you're all that. Don't let your mistress feel bad about what she is not able to do. But you serve. And so Hagar changed her attitude and she goes back. That's how we experience or we tap into our unfulfilled potential. You ever study icebergs? They're very interesting. The iceberg oftentimes helps us to see what our unfulfilled potential is like. 10% of the iceberg is visible above the surface or above the waterline. 90% of the iceberg's volume is below the surface. And so 10% of what's going on in your life that may impact or affect your potential is visible and known to others. But the issue is that 90% of what affects your potential is invisible and unknown to others, but though it's known to you and God, it's there. But we tend to, we want to blame people because it's so easy to blame people. And so when I think about what's known to others, you know, in the context of work, my boss may be a problem. You know, the culture of the organization may be toxic. You know, that maybe the lack of training is very limited. And so that's what's known to others. And so we point our fingers. The boss, the culture, the training, or the lack thereof. That's the reason why I'm not where I'm, where I'm supposed to be or haven't hit my capacity, my peak. It's easy to do that. But take a step back. That may only be 10% of what impacts your potential. But under the skin, below the surface, the biggest hindrances lie there. Things like your attitude, your perspective, your self-confidence and your courage, your abilities, they play a significant role as to what you become. And even your discipline, that's key. But we don't want to deal with that because that's under the skin. But what I'm saying is that, think about it, really. Sometimes we don't climb the ladder corporately, not because we don't have the ability, but because our attitude stinks. We have an attitude, and people see it when we express it. Or sometimes we don't climb the corporate ladder, not because our attitude stinks. We may be the nicest person in the world, but we're just undisciplined. We come late every time. Sometimes it's our self-confidence. We just lack the courage. We just say, you know, it's not going to work out. What do you mean it's not going to work out? Are you going to try? No. I, a lot of people I know tried, and they didn't make it. You just, you don't try. We find ourselves not fulfilling our potential because sometimes we just listen to words of people rather than realizing negative people, rather than positive people. We need some positive people in our lives because those positive people provoke us. Some of my biggest days of growth was when I was around people that really let me know, David, you can do it. You, you, you can make things happen. You have gifts. You know, just do it. I remember what helped our church make a major change when we first began. I used to complain to my wife. I said, honey, I, I can't really get the work of God done because I don't have the leaders that I, that I need. And one day she said, look, honey, why don't you stop complaining and do something about it? 
Why don't don't you train them? Why don't you spend some time giving them a reading program? I got so angry. Because she's putting stuff, because it was so easy to complain. Complaining is easy. And then I sat down and I started to craft developmental programs and reading programs and leadership plans. And all of a sudden, I started spending time with individuals and in- investing in them these ideas. And I started seeing them grow. And then I was able to take on different roles. Why? Because this sense of that, that statement to me challenged me. People, that's what they do. They stir you. I remember this farmer was walking through the woods one day and he just came to this tree and the strangest thing, there was an egg laying at the base of the tree. It wasn't even cracked. And the farmer knew that this egg was still alive and he took it home and he put it in a chicken coop. And after a week or so, the egg hatched and it was an eagle. But the farmer said to himself, I'm going to train this eagle to be a chicken. And so he kept the eagle among the chickens. And it was so odd. The eagle was eating chicken food and clucking and pecking and acting like a chicken. And when the other chickens would fly like you know, two feet away and get off the ground for about a foot or two, that eagle just got off the ground two feet and then flew two feet and came back down because all the other chickens were doing it. One day as they were just walking around the, you know, the, you know, the yard, they all looked up and they saw this most majestic thing, this bird from, from wingtip to wingtip, 10 feet span, and it was just flying so majestically in the sky. And the eagle said to the chicken, what is that? And the chicken said, that's an eagle. Get your eyes off that. You could never do that. And so the eagle that was there just started eating the other chicken food like the rest of the chicken. And the second day, that same majestic, mature eagle flying around, saw this big bird walking among the chickens, so it decided to go right down to the chicken coop. And flew right down and landed there. And it stood next to the other eagle, the younger, more immature eagle, and said, what are you doing here? You're not a chicken. You're an eagle. He said, I'm no eagle, I'm a chicken. I've been here all my life, eating chicken food. Yeah, I'm, I, these are my chicken friends. These are my chicken family. And, and, he's just, and, 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 he's, and, and the eagle, the mature eagle said, look, I, you can do what I do. I want to challenge you. You can fly just as majestically as I fly. Do you see that mountaintop over there? He said, yeah, that's so far. I can't go there. The, you know, the mature eagle said, you can do it. Come on. We're going to fly in a moment. I want you to flutter your wings and just say, I can do this. And he started fluttering his wings. And the moment that small eagle took off and flew alongside that big mature eagle and flew to the mountaintop, never to return to the, to the chicken coop. I want you to know that you've been hanging out with chickens. Some of you have been eating chicken food. You got your chicken friends. You got your chicken conversations. You got your chicken dreams. You got your, your, chicken, your chicken ideas. And you're wondering why you can't fulfill your potential. Because you have too many chickens in your life. It's time for you to be able to hang out with eagles and be challenged to be able to do what eagles do. That's God's desire for you. See, people propel us. The famous 19th century poet and artist, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, one day was confronted by this old man. He had this big package in his hands and he said, excuse me, I know you're very busy, Mr. Rossetti, but would you mind taking a moment and looking over these sketches that I have done and see if they're of any value? Rossetti was a very kind man, so he looked over them and he knew this is horrible. And so he didn't want to hurt the man's feelings. He said, sir, this, I will be honest with you. These, there's no potential here. I, I'm sorry to tell you that. 
And the old man thanked him. Thank you for your honesty, sir. He said, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I have this other batch, and it's for a young, from a younger artist. Would you mind looking at them? And Rossetti took the time and looked through it, and he said, wow, these are very good. What, what, what young artist is so promising? I, I want to encourage you, whoever that young artist is, you need to just pump him up and help him understand that he's good. He has great future, great promise, and I just encourage him. And then Rossetti said, is this your, son, your son's work? And the old man said, no, it was my work 40 years ago, but I never had someone that affirmed me. I wish I knew you 40 years ago because I gave up. I want you to know that people propel you. You need to find yourself in circumstances and situations where people can challenge you. And sometimes we don't want people to challenge us because sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it doesn't feel pleasant. Sometimes even they may not challenge us with affirming words. Oh, you have great future. They may say, you did a lousy job here. Come on, fix it. And we storm away. We don't, we don't want to fix it. We don't want to do it because it's not pleasurable. I remember when I came from Jamaica to America. And my parents were in America for several years before me and my younger brother, the four of us Ireland kids, were here in the States. And when I came to the States, I was eight years old. I didn't know that I had a reading problem, writing problem. Didn't know. My mother was an educator when she realized, wait a second, her son has a problem. I remember every evening she would sit down with me in the kitchen. And I'd get so angry. Because she said, David, that's not how you write. Here's how you write. Every time you write, and this is penmanship now, put a finger space between each word so it's legible. And every evening she'd sit down and she'd take her pinky and she'd put it between each word. Sometimes I was so angry I would just cry because I, I didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it. But yet, she propelled me. My dad, he took a step back, he just let her do her thing. When I was in college and I was doing mechanical engineering, I thought I was never going to graduate because the first semester I had one of the hardest courses, calculus. Man, that beat me up. And I'm thinking, oh man, I've never failed a course in my life, I'm going to fail. When I go to the student union building, I pulled out, you know, I took my letters out, it was a letter from mom, and she didn't know what I was going through. She said, son, whatever man has done, man can do. You do it. It was like wind in my sails. Graduated, finished up, went on graduate school, postdoc, University of Penn, now I'm at Cambridge, doing all that. But I couldn't write. And she sat down with me. Written over 20 books, translated into a lot of languages now because she propelled me. People, that's what they do. And I want you to understand, there are people in your life that you may not see the nth degree of to their potential, their trajectory, their goal, their, their, their capacity. But if you would then just put yourself in a position where you can be one of those individuals that put wind in their sail, or put yourself in a position so someone can put wind in your sail, and sometimes it won't be pleasurable. Sometimes it'll pain you. But all oh, the end result is that you'll become what God in His infinite wisdom has called you to become. There's something powerful about that very thing. May I now bring things to a close? As I look at 
the idea that Hagar learned that not only do promises position me and people provoke me, but she learned that, I'm sorry, not only that problems position me and people provoke me, but she learned that promises propel me. And I want you to recognize that very point. Promises propel me. And here we see the angel of the Lord tells us in Genesis 16 and verse 10. Angel says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. God gave Hagar this promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son. His name will be Ishmael, which means God will hear. And Hagar received this powerful promise from God himself. And so promises, when they, they come to us, we should meditate on them, chew on them. Let the nutrients of this covenantal commitment that God makes towards us, let it become sustenance and nourishment and nutrients to our soul. Promises are to be confessed. Let it become your self-talk. I can almost hear Agar say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can hear her say that I don't care what my master or what my mistress throws at me, that God has plans for me, plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plans to give me a future and a hope. And then she memorializes the covenant that God made with her. In verse 13 it says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hagar says, look, God, you, you, you saw me in my misery. And you showed me mercy. God, you saw me when I felt so worthless and without value. And you told me that I was priceless and invaluable because you gave me a promise. God, you saw me walking alone away from my purpose and you walked with me towards my potential. God, I thank you. You are the one who sees. In the Hebrew, it's El-Roi, R-O-I, the God who sees. Legend tells us that this tourist had gone to Hong Kong and they walked into this jewelry store and they saw all these beautiful gems just radiating. And then they come to a counter and there was this dull jewel that lacked luster. And they had to comment to the jeweler, why is this jewel so, it lacks so much luster, it's so drab. And the jeweler took the jewel out, put it in the palm of his hand and clasped it, held it for a few moments, then opened it. And the jewel radiated with all this gleam and glistened in, in his hand. And then he said to the tourist, this is an opal. It's referred to as a sympathetic jewel. When it gets gripped into the human hand, it then brings out the radiance and its beauty. That day, through the promise, Hagar was gripped into the hand of El Roi, 
the God who sees. And when he opened his hand, she radiated with beauty. I want you to see what God can do with you when you allow him to put you into his hand and let him teach you how problems can position you. Let him teach you how his, his promises can propel you and how people that he sovereignly brings into your life can provoke you to become your very best. And at the end of the day, you are not a chicken. You're an eagle. What a God that we serve.